Well, thank you very much, Josh. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. Uh, Exodus, and we're looking uh, this evening in our series as we continue uh, in the book of Exodus. We're looking at chapters 3 and chapter 4. And I'm going to read out the whole thing. (laughs) So (laughs) it's good news. I didn't invite you to stand right (laughs) So let's, uh, let's look at it together. It's just such a wonderful story. It really is a pinnacle moment, as uh, uh, Josh has already indicated. And uh, there are some slightly unusual parts of it as well. So let's hear God's word. Exodus chapter 3, and I'll read to the end of chapter 4. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because they're taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression of which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I'll bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go, 
unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt of all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. (laughs) Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let me go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. 
So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the law which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This is God's word. Well, it's quite an amazing passage, isn't it? And as we look at it together, and obviously we won't cover every single detail, but I did want to give you a sense of the expanse of it and, the, uh, and help you get a little bit of the picture as we read it. Um, as we do that, I also wanted to set it again in the context of the book. So you remember, we've uh, divided the book up uh, in our minds into three sections around uh, rescue, uh, revelation, and Religion. So the, the, the book of Exodus is basically telling the story of how God rescues his people, then how he speaks to his people, and then how he meets with his people, or how uh, rescue, revelation, how God speaks to his people, and then religion, the, the way that he sets up uh, the, uh, the meeting uh, place, the tabernacle and all that. But as it tells that story in the book of Exodus, it also over and over and over again uh, repeats that it's incomplete. So the, um, the rescue of God's people is chapters 1 to 15, but then you have four or five chapters that talk about all the mistakes they make and the grumbling and all the rest because the rescue is incomplete. And then the revelation uh, of, um, uh, uh, goes from, um, uh, from chapter 20 to around 30, chapter 31, but then, you know, the, the giving the Ten Commandments and all the rest. Uh, but then you have, of course, the golden calf and the rebellion of God's people. And uh, so God speaks, um, but there's, there's a, um, it's not fulfilled, it's not finalized yet. There's more to come, the book of Exodus is saying. This isn't the final thing. And then even right at the end of the book, um, where you get the, the, the tabernacle and the last paragraph, um, Moses can't even go in there because the glory of the Lord is there. And, of course, they're traveling, they're journeying, they haven't arrived. So there's this constant sense that God, God is rescuing his people, he's speaking to his people, he's meeting with his people, but there's a further horizon. And, of course, part of that further horizon is entrance into the promised land. But even when they get to the promised land, they don't fully conquer it because there's a further horizon. And you get the same story told over and over again in the Bible with Joshua and the book of Judges and, of course, David, the son of David, who's, who's going to reign forever. But, of course, <laughs> uh, King Solomon doesn't reign forever. So the, f- the final point is all saying, book of Exodus, there's a final horizon, which, of course, is Christ. And so that's the context, and we're, we're looking in the first part about the rescue. And here we have um, the rescue being set up uh, with the call of the rescuer. But the, the fascinating thing about the call of the rescuer with the burning bush and all the rest is there's a contrast being made between the rescuer Moses, who's really quite incomplete, And yet, God uses him. 
And there's a contrast with, of course, the rescuer, who in the salvation history story of the Bible is finally revealed in the New Testament, but is actually right here too, as, uh, as we'll see. Uh, So uh, this is, I suppose we could say, about the incompleteness of human rescuers leading us to worship the divine rescuer. Why do we need to listen to this? Uh, Why is this important? I think one of the great questions that many of us have today is who do we listen to? Uh, We've been thinking about this in the mornings of all the information age we live in. Of course, the same is true in the religious community. You go to YouTube And there are just so many messages from so many different people about so many different things. How do you know who to listen to? And here we have uh, a story about God's imperfect but faithful uh, rescuer pointing us to the perfect gospel. And God's people then do listen rightly and they bow and worship. So, of course, the key is whether the word of God is being faithfully communicated. For Moses, for all his failures, uh, does communicate God's word and is faithful to God, trusts God, and does go in the end, even though he objects. He does go, and he does speak God's word. So it gives us a, a framework for knowing who to listen to and how to hear God's word whether the person, the individual, is pointing us to to Christ and to the gospel. So I put it like this in a phrase, when God's imperfect but faithful leaders point us to the perfect gospel, we are to bow in worship, which is what the people of Israel do at the end, of course. So where is this incompleteness of uh, Moses and the story? Well, it's in multiple places, actually. First of all, in chapter 3, verse 1, we meet Moses um, keeping the flock of his father and Lord Jethro, the priest of Midian. Um, uh, So Moses is now quite old. Uh, He's 80. And he's been wandering around as a shepherd for a long time. And, uh, of course, he was putting himself forward as the rescuer. And he failed. He ended up killing someone. And now he's, um, you know, a pastoral and physically shepherding. And he's not, he's not a very heroic figure at this point. He's keeping the flock. Um, he's 80 years old, perhaps somewhat frail. Doesn't seem like a great heroic rescuer figure. Uh, Then we meet him again in verse 13, his first objection. Uh, Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? We're not quite sure why he asked this question specifically. Scholars have debated this uh, quite a lot. Why does he ask, what is his name? It's possible that in the Egyptian religion at the time, it seems as if the Egyptians were fascinated by the name of their gods and gave particular significance to the various names of their god. And so the Israelites, who of course have been in Egypt for a long time, have become similarly sort of fascinated with the connection between a name and somehow the the essence of the, the authority. And so that could be why he's asking. But anyway, he begins to object, doesn't he? He doesn't just immediately say, yes, sir, I'm going. 
Uh, he says, well, what am I going to say? And he's starting to object. Uh, then you see, of course, the same thing again in chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. Not a particularly heroic figure. Um, perhaps, perhaps he reminds us of our own prayer lives. It's quite encouraging. Um, go and tell your neighbor about Jesus. But Lord, they won't listen. Uh, I, I suspect we've all prayed that a few times, haven't we? He's very human. And uh, then, uh, amazingly, verse 10, he says, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent. I mean, Moses, who's one of the most famous preachers in the whole Bible. Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant by him, slow of speech and of tongue. Some people, as you probably know down through history, wonder whether Moses had a stammer. I actually, when I was at Cambridge running um, the, the college ministry at the time, there was an intern who was working with me who um, was doing academic work, was trying to figure out whether he was called to be a pastor or not. And one of the things he was wrestling was that he did have a stammer. His name is John, John Percival. And I remember talking with him about this and pointing him directly to this text and saying, that's no excuse, brother. And he's actually a pastor of a church in Hong Kong now. So. But he, uh, Moses objects again. And then, of course, chapter 4, verse 13. Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. So he begins in uh, chapter 3, verse 4, where he says, Here I am, which sounds beautiful, doesn't it? Moses, Moses, here I am. And he ends up saying, Here I am, send him. <laughs> and I suspect we've all thought that at times, haven't we? He's very human. And that encourages us Um. But it also protects us from idolizing our human leaders, even a Moses. He's so human. Well, though, what about, um, well, I suppose we should look at the very strange verse uh, 24 and 25. When I was studying for this, I got to uh, verses 24 and 25 of chapter 4. When I was studying this, and I was trying once again, I mean, I've looked at these verses many times trying to figure out what on earth are they talking about. And I thought, well, if all else fails, I'll go to what Jonathan Edwards says. Jonathan Edwards has this um, thing he calls the blank Bible, which is um, it's, it's a, there's a physical Bible you can see at Yale. But there's a Bible he had and he had all every um, he had um, the scripture text on one side and then he had inserted a blank page on the other side so he could write his notes next to the verse you see and it's actually all online and you can you can go through it canonically so you can just go online and think what does Edward say about Deuteronomy 3 verse 1 or something like that and there'll usually be something there and and he has various things to say about um, this uh, these two chapters which are fascinating some of which I'll allude to a little bit later but I thought, okay, so Edwards, Edwards who loved conundrums and difficult problems, what do you think about chapter 4, verses 24 and 25? And the answer is, he said nothing. <laughs> Which may be the path of prudence, I don't know. But it's certainly a bit strange. I think it's, it, the, the obvious thing to say is that for some reason, Moses, 
who had been no doubt influenced by Egypt and Egyptian religion a little bit perhaps, and at this time was less close to God than maybe he should have been, that Moses had not circumcised his child in the way that Abraham had been told by God to ensure that they were circumcised. And so he was symbolically outside of the covenant. Um, And therefore, Zipporah uh, decides to, um, uh, I I was going to say take the bull by the horns, but that's probably not the right phrase to use in this regard. (laughs) Uh, But Zipporah decides to intervene and and in sort of frustration, she says, well, you should have done it yourself. And sort of throws the remnants at uh, Moses' feet. That's probably literally what's going on. And of course it's there to indicate at least partly. It's more, more than this as we'll see actually I think. More than this. But it's partly there to indicate that Moses is a human sinner. And yet God uses him. And yet as he preaches God's word and is faithful despite his failings to follow God. Uh, God's people bow and worship before the Lord. Anyway, that's all the incompleteness of uh, this rescuer who's called. But what about uh, the rescuer, the divine rescuer himself, who is also very much prominent in this passage? And uh, so verse 2 of chapter 3, this is the contrast, the contrast with the final fulfillment pointed to Christ, who is, I think, and uh, most Christian scholars have agreed, prominently in this passage so chapter 3 verse 2 it says the angel of the lord appeared to him well in the in the old testament the angel of the lord is often a description perhaps not always but often a description for the pre-incarnate christ so it's a theophany it's the angel of the lord it's some stupendous being beyond moses's ability to really understand or grasp but it's often there in the Old Testament to indicate that this is a theophany, an appearance, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. So you see that in uh, verse 2. But then again, you see in verse 4. So those who will say, well, you're reading a little bit too much into that. Look at verse 4 of chapter 3. It says, the Lord saw that he turned aside to see. The Lord saw that Moses turned aside to look at the burning bush. And then God called to him out of the bush. In some strange way, God is in the bush. And actually, this is clearly uh, how Moses uh, himself um, understands what took place later on. So if you have a Bible open, you come to Deuteronomy chapter 33. Um, if, you can't, if you don't have it, you don't want to turn to it, it's all right, I'll read it for you. But this is the famous song of Moses at the end of his life. And he reflects back on um, this moment and he's talking about God who gives favor Deuteronomy 33 verse 16 he says the favor of him who dwells in the bush so for Moses God is the one who dwells in the bush this isn't like a Christian reinterpretation this is what Moses thought God dwells in the bush Um, Similarly, in verse uh, 5, you see uh, he says here, um, uh, God says to Moses, then he said, do do not come near, take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. Of course, the point of that is not that the the physical ground is holy, more literally, it's the ground of holiness. The point is God is there and therefore 
anywhere around where God is, is holy. It's the ground of holiness. It's the person who makes it holy, not the place being, being holy. And then, of course, you get uh, this amazing description of uh, the I am. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say to this people, I am has sent me to you. The very nature of God being eternally existent is revealed uh, to Moses. And um, the very... uh, this, This is hard to simply, briefly um, articulate in a way that is going to land, but the very burning bush is, I think, intended, as we read back with our fuller understanding and the further horizon, the incompleteness contrasted with the completeness, the burning bush, there's God in the burning bush saying, I've heard the people's suffering. Where is God? In a burning bush. That's the God we worship, Christians. The God who's incarnate and suffered and died on a cross. He's the God of the burning bush. It's all intended to indicate that. And I think you, you, we probably don't have time to get into it to pass it all out, but the, the signs are intended to do the same sort of thing. Obviously, the serpent is the, by the further horizon. You lift up the snake and you look at the snake and you trust in him. And the, and, 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 uh, the leprous, the leprous hand that is healed. And then you have, of course, the Nile that turns to blood. And then we come to this, as I say, very strange text, uh, verses 24-25 of chapter 4. And I think it is, though, a little bit more than simply saying Moses hadn't circumcised his son. It's saying a little bit more than that. So, for instance, if you look right beforehand, um, God has just indicated this atoning uh, process that will take place later in the Passover, that Israel is his firstborn son. If Pharaoh doesn't let his firstborn son, then, then Pharaoh's firstborn son will be killed. But of course, Israel is only redeemed through the blood of the lamb in their place. And here you have this blood, this bridegroom of blood. It's, all into, it's not, of course, a full articulation of substitutionary atonement. Of course not. But it's all intended to tutor God's people. The, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, is the God of the burning bush. He's the God who feels our pain, knows our pain, and he's the God of blood and sacrifice in our place that we might be rescued. It's all intended to tutor, teach us towards that. And uh, then, of course, um, in the, New, in the New Testament, circumcision, Colossians 2, verse 11, the circumcision is the circumcision done by the hand of Christ. That is regeneration, new life, through trust in the blood of Christ. And so then, um, I was going to say Paul, but I've been preaching on Paul so much this morning. Every time I think about the Bible, I say, then Paul says, which wouldn't be accurate. 
Then at the end of this passage, we find uh, the response of the people. Uh, and I, I wondered to myself, when, so verse 29, when Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people, they spoke all the words the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. I, wonder, I wonder some, wondered somewhat naughtily whether they also said the number of times that Moses objected. I don't know. But it's certainly recorded for us in Scripture, isn't it? He's not a perfect leader. He's very human. And yet he spoke God's word, and the people believed. And when they heard the Lord visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So as I say, I think this text is all intended to contrast the incompleteness of a human rescuer with the perfectness of the divine worshiper. And therefore, when God's imperfect but faithful leaders point us to the perfect rescue or the perfect gospel, we are to listen and bow and worship. Our God is the God of the burning bush. And therefore, what does that mean by application? I suppose it means, uh, very simply, that we are to listen to the Bible and to worship God. In particular, to worship Jesus, who here is revealed in his pre-incarnate theophany in the burning bush, Uh, but the Jesus who came and was incarnate, suffered, heard our cry, and died on the cross for us. It's a wonderful book, the book of Exodus, and I'm looking forward to someone else preaching it next Sunday evening. (laughs) I don't know who that is. Is that you, Josh? Josh is preaching next Sunday. Josh is good. I'll look forward to that. Though I won't be in the country. So I'll, I'll, I'll hear it afterwards. I'll hear it afterwards, yeah. Well, let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, so much uh, for your word. We pray that indeed we would listen and worship you, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.